0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: That leaked Supreme Court draft prompting a Senate vote as I speak. The lead starts right now. The nays will likely have it. Senate Democrats forcing a bill on abortion rights, but the legislation goes farther than Roe v. Wade does. Was this a democratic strategic mistake? Plus, making gains. Ukrainians retake their captured towns near Russia's border as Putin's forces make a new play in Southern Ukraine. And stopped and searched. A woman's lacrosse team from a historically black college says it was racially profiled during a traffic stop in Georgia. The case now drawing the attention of Capitol Hill. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news and our politics lead in what is soon expected to be a bipartisan rejection of the Democratic-led bill aimed at preserving access to abortion nationwide. The U.S. Senate is voting right this minute on the Women's Health Protection Act. But ahead of the vote, the bill was widely condemned by Republicans, even the two who support abortion rights, and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. That's because, those three say, it went further than codifying Roe v. Wade. It would eliminate, in fact, any state's pre-existing restrictions on abortion. Senator Manchin explained his no vote to CNN earlier today.
2: The bill we have today to vote on, the Women's Health Protection Act, and I respect people who support, but make no mistake, it is not Roe v. Wade codification. It's an expansion it wipes 500, 500 state laws off the books. It expands abortion. And with that, that's not where we are today.
1: Democratic leaders admitted they expected this vote would fail, but they pushed it through anyway, wanting to put lawmakers on the record, they said, after that leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion reveals that the Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe v. Wade as soon as next month. CNN's Jessica Dean is live for us on Capitol Hill. And Jessica, this bill is expected to fail. So what's the best case scenario for Democrats right now?
3: At this point, Jake, the best case for them is to have this be a messaging vote and to really rile up their base as they turn to the 2022 midterm elections. That is simply the best case. As you well know, congressionally, Democrats don't have any moves left here. In terms of Senate action, people calling to, f- to blow up the filibuster, we know Democrats don't have the votes for that. Uh, people calling for expansion of the Supreme Court, we know Sup- uh, Democrats don't have the votes for that. So really, this is all they can do, this messaging vote, uh, where they can really get a lot of attention for this and, again, try to fire up their base. And as you noted, they don't even have the full support of all Democrats on vo- on board. Senator Joe Manchin saying that this simply is just too wide-ranging. That is uh, the complaining criticism that we also heard from Senators Murkowski and Collins who do support abortion rights and have their own bill that is more limited that would simply codify uh, Roe v. Wade and the right to an abortion and the right for providers to provide abortion services to patients. Uh, Jake, what this bill does, in addition to codifying uh, those rights, it also is targeted at a lot of these bills and laws that we've seen put on the books across the country that are restricting abortion access. So it would do things like end mandatory waiting periods. It would end mandatory ultrasounds, uh, things like that. That's what makes it different and is a bridge too far uh, for Senator Manchin and others as well.
1: Jessica, House Republican leaders who are uh, possibly going to take over the House in November, House Republican leaders, they were asked today if they would support a nationwide ban on abortion across the country. What did they have to say to that?
3: Well, they didn't say much in the form of a direct answer, Jake. They kind of skirted the issue. We heard from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy who responded to that by saying he didn't want to get into hypotheticals. He didn't want to talk about hypothetical situations. As Steve Scalise, uh, the minority whip, also kind of skirting that issue, not making a direct answer, really trying to pivot back. Uh, we do know that McCarthy said today that he did support exceptions for rape and incest, which is not a uniform opinion across uh, the Republican Party right now. So it will be interesting to see how they move forward. And this is also coming after we heard from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier this week, who he said it was possible this could happen. He since uh, kind of walked that back in a way and said that he's really relying on states to take up this issue, that that's what Republicans want to see uh, states addressing this issue.
4: Jake.
1: All right, Jessica Dean on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette of Colorado. She is the co-chair of the Congressional Pro-Choice Caucus. Congresswoman, thanks so much, Uh, for joining us. So Senators Manchin, Collins, and Murkowski did not vote for this bill, the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, because they say it goes beyond just codifying Roe v. Wade. Uh, For example, they say it would not allow states to have any restrictions on abortion whatsoever. Now, Democratic Democratic leaders say they wanted a messaging bill to put everyone on the record. So the record's going to show, ultimately, bipartisan opposition to to your bill. So was this strategy a mistake, do you think?
5: Jake, frankly, that's just an excuse on their part. All of those three have never exactly said what they would support, but the Women's Health Protection Act that the Senate's voting on, that doesn't allow all abortions. It codifies Roe versus Wade, and Roe versus Wade puts puts forth a pretty clear framework on what's allowed and what's not allowed. And so this is just an excuse on their part. And by the way, the bill that Susan Collins says is a narrower bill that codifies Roe versus Wade, it has a poison pill in it because it allows abortion providers to just refuse to provide abortions if they don't want to on a conscience clause. So so they're, they're, it's really just an excuse. I don't think they ever intended to vote for it. But what we need to do now, we need to move forward and frankly, the voters of America support Roe versus Wade by an overwhelming majority over 70%. And so the voters are going to have to decide in November who they want representing them in the House and in the Senate. And I think they're going to vote for pro-choice candidates.
1: One of the main Republican talking points today is that Democrats on this issue are extremists because you support abortion with absolutely no restrictions. Take a listen to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today.
6: Legislation would allow abortions of viable babies in the ninth month With no waiting period or informed consent at the hands of a non-physician, taxpayers could be forced to pay for it, and Catholic hospitals would be forced to perform it. What's your response?
5: Well, aside from that being completely untrue and a lie, this has been for quite some time the efforts of Mitch McConnell. And the Republicans in the House and Senate to change the subject because what we're saying is Roe versus Wade, which people support, the vast majority of Americans support the right for a woman to get the full range of health care, including abortions. They're trying to make up some situation that doesn't even exist. There's nobody in this country who, at nine months pregnant, wakes up and decides to go and get an abortion. That's just that's false, and it's and and. What they're they're really going to do, and we've seen this in some states since the Supreme Court took the Mississippi case, some states are actually going to try to ban abortions for everybody. They're going to try to ban abortions for an 11-year-old incest victim. They're going to try to ban abortions for someone who got raped. And, And they're going to try to ban abortions for people who, if they carry a very much wanted baby to term, will die. That's really what their goal is here.
1: But just to be clear on the Democratic legislation uh, that the Senate is voting on right now, does it permit states to have any restrictions? Does it permit uh, Catholic hospitals to refuse to perform abortions?
5: So, so right now, Roe versus Wade allows, um, allows certain types of restrictions. It sets forth... A, 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 a system by which number of weeks the states are allowed to have restrictions, and they do have those restrictions. And there also are rules in place that will allow Catholic hospitals not to por- perform abortions if it is their conscience. This is just all, a whole bunch of made-up scare tactics, because the bottom line is, what we're trying to do is make sure every woman in this country gets the health care she needs including abortions. And that means codifying Roe versus Wade. If people don't like what they're seeing, what they need to do is make sure that we have a U.S. House of Representatives that will continue to do what we did and will continue to do what the Senate has done.
1: Right, no, I I understand that Roe, I understand Roe v. Wade allows states to have restrictions. Yes. Um, My question is, does this Democratic legislation in the Senate allow states to have restrictions?
5: Yes, it does. It's a codification of Roe versus Wade. And by the way, that's the same bill that passed the U.S. House just a couple of months ago.
1: All right, because my understanding was that it did not allow restrictions. Uh, that's That's the reason why Manchin and and Collins and Murkowski say they oppose it because it doesn't allow states to, to keep the restrictions that they may already have in place.
5: Well, there's some there are some restrictions that states have put in place that we don't think are in the spirit of Roe. For example, making people go through unnecessary ultrasounds or putting making doors be a certain width or something like that. But the basic tenet of Roe is that States can put restrictions after a certain number of weeks, and a number of states, most states have done that, that will be allowed under this bill. This is what I'm saying, Jake, is that that Manchin, Murkowski, and Collins are, are simply, it's not true what they're saying, that no restrictions would be allowed. That's just not true.
1: All right. Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up next on The Lead, fighting back and gaining ground, the strategic stretch where Ukrainians say Russians are worried, plus the announcement today that could be a breakthrough in the national shortage of baby formula, but still cannot come fast enough. Stay with us. The war in Ukraine tops our world lead. For the first time, a civilian in Russia reportedly has been killed as a result of cross-border shelling from Ukraine. Russian authorities say it happened in a town near Belgorod, which is about 10 miles from the border. A Ukrainian counteroffensive in the northeastern part of the country appears to be making progress. Ukraine says it has freed some of the communities around the town of Kharkiv amid signs of a Russian retreat in the area. New pictures show abandoned and burned out Russian military vehicles. Recapturing the battered area would be a significant accomplishment for Ukrainian forces. However, there are worries that a Russian counteroffensive may be in the works. President Zelensky, citing the Russian war crimes committed in Bucha and Mariupol, says with each new atrocity, the desire and possibility of negotiations with the Russians evaporate. Despite all the suffering in Ukraine, there is occasionally good news. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh found a woman whose life almost ended, but then she
7: emerged from the rubble. Sometimes places that speak only of death throw up a jewel of life. <laughs> this is the first time Ayuna has stood in this spot. Since 72 days ago, she was dragged out from the rubble here. Her husband, Andre, had been scouring it, looking for her for three hours. She remembers the cupboard.
8: That was where I was
7: standing. The multiple rocket attack on this the Kharkiv regional administration was an early sign of the ferocious, cowardly brutality Russia would unleash on civilian targets. This is Ayuna. Then, she had been serving coffee and cookies to soldiers. Saw a flash. ...and curled into a
8: ball. I feel a physical manifestation of fear.
7: I don't like cookies
8: anymore. A box fell on me and I remember the smell.
7: She asked to step away, saying she's sick with butterflies... ...like she hasn't felt since before races... ...when she used to swim professionally. Andre picks up the story.
9: When I heard her voice, I was crawling across the rubble, and the emergency services were trying to kick me out. I pulled a man out and then heard her. I did not plan to leave her here.
7: The soldiers waiting in the corridor outside from her died. The young women in the basement below her died, their bodies not found for three weeks. Yet somehow the concrete here fell, shielding Ayuna.
8: I knew I was alive, in pain, but nothing broken, but was worried I would be left and never be heard. The first time they heard me, they started to get me out, and the second missile came, and I was properly trapped.
7: A rescuer eventually heard her.
8: Andre got closer, and I said it was me, and he cried. They said they shouldn't lift the baton on me, but Andre did, alone. It got easier to breathe. I was surprised as I thought I was still at ground level. The ambulance guy said, it's your second birthday,
7: you're alive. Fragments of a haki now passed, pepper this shell, cleaning up and trying to sweep away its trauma. I sleep with the
8: lights on, And when there's a loud car or, God forbid, a jet plane, I brace. The nightmares that I'm again lying there and shivering cold, and that nobody hears my cries, that also stops me from sleeping.
7: Ayuna was born in Russia, but can no longer talk to her relatives there. She says they believe Russian state media's absurd claims. This is a limited operation against Nazis.
8: They say it was my stupidity and that I don't need to be here. I hope when time passes, our children can talk, but I can't talk to them now. Russia has lost its mind and cannot control its president. They are all each responsible, every citizen.
7: The story here, not of ruins, loss or burial in dust but instead of a feverish energy that burns through the building's bones as Kharkiv gets to decide where its pieces fall now. Nick Payton-Walsh, CNN, Kharkiv, Ukraine.
1: And our thanks to Nick Payton-Walsh for that report. Also on our world lead today, veteran Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh was shot and killed today while covering an Israeli military operation at the Janine Palestinian refugee camp in the West Bank. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem for us, and Hadass, there are conflicting accounts about who shot her. Tell us more.
10: Well, Jake, I'm standing outside of Shireen's house in East Jerusalem. You can see that family and friends have been gathering here to mourn the passing of this veteran Palestinian-American correspondent who has spent decades covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And she was killed this morning while covering an Israeli military operation in the West Bank town of Jenin. What we understand is that she was shot in Jenin. We have seen really disturbing video where you can see right after she was shot she's laying on the ground and it is very clear jake that she is wearing the protective gear that we so often see journalists out in the field wearing that protective vest and a helmet with a clear sign on her chest and on her back saying that she is a member of the press her producer ali al-samudi was also shot but he is in stable condition he says that it was israeli forces who shot them, and that there were no Palestinian militants next to them while this occurred. The Al Jazeera network is placing the blame squarely on Israeli forces. They are calling on the international community to hold to hold them accountable. Now, the Israeli defense forces say that they were in Jenin undertaking what they said were counterterrorism operations. The Israeli military has stepped up their operations in the West Bank, especially in the last couple of, couple of weeks. This has been in response to a series of attacks targeting Israelis that have killed 18 people. Now, the Israeli defense forces say that they were uh, in Jenin for these counterterrorism operations when they came under heavy fire and that they returned fire. Now, initially, Israeli officials and the Israeli military said that they had Reason to believe, they said that it was likely that Shireen was shot in what they said was indiscriminate firing from Palestinian forces. However, that has been softened uh, recently, and the IDF now says at this stage it is not possible to determine who shot her, that they have set up a special team that will clarify the facts and present them in full as soon as possible. Jake.
1: All right, Hadass Gold, thank you so much. The January 6 investigation by a Select House committee is about to enter a new phase, what the panel is expected to reveal when public hearings... Start soon. Stay with us. Breaking news. As as anticipated, the Democratic-led bill in the Senate aimed at preserving access to abortion nationwide has failed. The final vote was 51 to 49. All of the Republicans, plus Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, opposed the bill. Also in our politics lead today, CNN is learning new details about the highly anticipated hearing set to begin next month on Capitol Hill that will reveal what the January 6th House Select Committee found over the last 10 months, including what former President Donald Trump was doing while the riot on Capitol Hill, the insurrection, unfolded. CNN special correspondent Jamie Gengel joins us now with her new reporting. And Jamie... There are going to be multiple hearings. Can you explain the timing and what we know about the topic so far?
11: So we know that the first hearing is going to be on June 9th. We expect eight hearings over the month of June, some during the day, some in prime time. We expect to see video from January 6th, as well as some of the nearly 1,000 interviews the committee has conducted behind closed doors as well as presentations that incorporate. Look, they've had thousands of documents, research, text messages, call records. And, Jake, we're told that the main goal of the hearings is really to show that even though Donald Trump was told there was no election fraud, December 1, his attorney general, Bill Barr, says there's no widespread fraud. And even though Trump was warned that there could be violence, he continued to push forward relentlessly with his campaign to overturn the election that led to January 6th. We also have been told that the committee is going to focus on three words, dereliction of duty, as you said, what Trump was doing, but also, maybe more important, what Trump didn't do, that while we were all watching the attack on the Capitol, while his staunchest Republican allies and family were calling and texting and pleading for him to act, Trump sat there for hours reportedly (coughs) watching television, rewinding the television for some of the attack before aides were finally able to convince him to make that video at 417 to finally say to rioters, go home. So that is a point we really expect them to focus on. Why didn't he tell them to stop to go home right away?
1: Of course, everyone's interested, uh, Jamie, in who's going to testify publicly. Who do you expect to be called, and has anyone been notified yet?
11: As far as we know, the committee is still finalizing its witness list. We reached out to some likely witnesses. We are told no one has received an invitation yet. That said, we know there are some likely people the the committee will want uh, for the public hearings. So, for example, former Justice Department officials like Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen— and his deputy, Richard Donahue, also uh, top Mike Pence aides like his former chief of staff, Mark Short, and general counsel, Greg Jacob. What's happened, Jake, is there have been videotaped and recorded depositions behind the scenes, like members of the Trump family, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, Don Trump, uh, Trump Jr. What we don't know yet is whether the committee is going to rely on those taped interviews, or we'll call them back for public hearings. And as we've said before, it is unlikely, we believe, that Vice President Pence will testify in public. It's also unlikely the committee would call former President Trump. Two sources told me they did not think it would be productive and that he probably wouldn't show up. Jake.
1: There have been so many new bombshell revelations that you have told us, that other people in the media have told us. Do you expect anything new to come out of this?
11: I think there's a lot that we do not know. And the other thing I'd point out is for those of us who are old enough to remember the Watergate hearings, there was a bombshell in the middle of the hearings when Alexander Butterfield, the presidential aide, revealed the White House recording system. So they are still collecting evidence. Uh, I, I think that there could be more bombshells to come.
1: All right, Jamie Gengal, great reporting. Thank you so much. Sure. Coming up next, the major announcement that could help ease one of the most frustrating crises right now for parents of young babies. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you now on the baby formula shortage in the United States. Formula maker Abbott Nutrition says its Michigan plant at the center of the February recall could restart within two weeks, pending approval by the FDA. But the company cautions it would then take at least six weeks for that product to be able to hit store shelves. This comes as a new analysis outlines the extent of the worsening baby formula crisis, which we first covered last month, the average out-of-stock rate for the U.S. has now climbed to 43%. By comparison, the number was between 2 and 8% during the first half of last year. In addition to the recall, analysts say stores have had a hard time keeping formula in stock due to inflation, as well as supply chain problems. The White House says it's working 24-7, along with the FDA, to address the shortage. Let's bring in Washington Post opinions columnist Alyssa Rosenberg, who wrote about this today. And Alyssa, just to establish your cred here, you're the mom of a six-month-old and a four-year-old. You get the anxiety a parent would feel not having a stable supply of nutrition for for their child. You wrote a column in the Post calling this shortage an outrage and saying it shows how deep the indifference towards babies in this country goes. Tell, Tell us more.
12: Look, I think that people think of formula sort of like a utility. It's just something that's always there. But it is a vital food source for a lot of kids. Three-quarters of American babies will have eaten at least some formula by the time they're six months old. And if they can't get it, it can be a catastrophe. It is especially challenging for babies who have metabolic issues, who have severe milk protein allergies, and have to eat special what are known as amino acid formulas. Um, and some of those formulas are the ones that have become particularly hard to find. If you have a baby, or if you're an older child using a feeding tube, or even some adults, and you can't just go buy the store brand formula, uh, you know, you can't just substitute, you know, Enfamil for Similac. You have to have the specific brand. And so these shortages are inconvenient at best for parents who formula feed, who are having to spend hours going from store to store or swooping down on, you know, websites like Target when inventory gets restocked. But if you have, you know, a baby or a young child who only eats a specific brand of formula, a shortage can be literally life-threatening.
1: And, you know, some of the the posts, I mean, look, social media is accessible no matter what, but I've seen uh, women uh, writing about this uh, on a personal level, what a crisis is for them, and the idiocy of the response is almost always from men, of course, uh, is really staggering. Just use your breasts. What do you think you breast milk's for, et cetera, et cetera? Explain for the uh, unenlightened yeah. why that is not the right answer.
12: And I, I really want to emphasize that breastfeeding is wonderful. I've been lucky enough to do it with two kids. It is not something that automatically happens for everyone. You don't give birth to a baby and flip a switch um, and have you know milk just come pouring out of you. You know, some women aren't born with the glandular tissue that they need to be able to produce milk. Um, If you have a traumatic birth, I have a good friend who had a postpartum hemorrhage, uh, or if you have retained placenta after you deliver, your body may be too busy healing to make the milk that your baby needs. Um, And that doesn't even begin to get to questions of public policy, you know it is appalling how many women in this country don't have access to safe sanitary spaces to pump or time at work to do it on a regular basis. Um, And so you can want to breastfeed more than anything else in the world. And it can just not happen through absolutely no fault of your own. And, you know, in, in previous generations, a baby in that circumstance would have a wet nurse. It would starve, or it might end up eating a homemade formula made of evaporated milk and caro syrup. And, you know, Formula is a blessing that can keep babies alive and healthy, but it has to be available. And so, you know, it would be absolutely wonderful if every woman in America who wanted to breastfeed her children had the physical capability to do it and employers who made that a priority. That is absolutely not the case.
1: So the White House says the FDA has taken a number of steps to address the crisis, but the supply situation, it's been getting worse for months and months what does the Biden administration yeah. uh, need to do right now to help desperate parents? Is the Defense Production Act a possibility?
12: You know, when I talked to Rosa DeLauro, who's uh, chairs the House Appropriations Committee, she brought that up as one possibility. Um, I, I want to be somewhat sympathetic to formula manufacturers here because I think this is a difficult problem that, and there were, there were issues in the supply chain that were showing up even before. Uh, this, the plant in Sturgis, Michigan and shut down. You know, Baby formula is a highly regulated product that uses specific ingredients. It has to be safe. The reason the Sturgis plant was shut down is because there was a whistleblower report suggesting that there were unsafe practices at the plant and also because um, two babies died after drinking formula that was produced there. And so you, know, you want to get this right. You can't do it slipshod. But I think it is striking that this is an area where there have been so few suggestions, right? When I set out to report this column, I actually reached out to Abbott. I reached out to Danone, which is another formula manufacturer, and said, you know, what could the government do to help you make more formula faster? And I could not get an answer out of either of those companies or from the Infant Nutrition Council. You know, I I think it's fairly unusual for a journalist to call up a company and say, what corporate boondoggle would you like from the federal government? <laughs> and, and to not get a response to that question. Um, right. But I think that that gets at the point that I was trying to make, Jake, which is that, you know, this is a substance that is absolutely vital for the survival of American babies. Um, and yet there's no contingency plan for what happens if a bunch of it suddenly disappears. It's not like we have yeah. a stockpile, a formula that we can release to the public. It's not... You know, if you are a WIC recipient, you're limited to buying certain brands of formula. Um, And so there, you know, what this crisis reveals is that there is no plan. And obviously, we can't let that happen again. We just can't.
1: Yeah. Alyssa Rosenberg, thanks so much for your time and and your passion on this issue. We appreciate it. Coming up next, a sheriff's denial after a woman's lacrosse team from a historically black university says it was searched for drugs during a traffic stop. For no apparent reason. Stay with us. There is growing outrage after police in Georgia stopped and searched a bus driving a lacrosse team from a historically black university. Officers say they pulled the bus over because the driver was driving in the wrong lane of the highway. But the police then proceeded to search students' belongings. They said they were looking for marijuana and other drugs. Obviously, if the driver was in the wrong lane, that says nothing about his passengers, who are mostly black. As CNN's Amara Walker reports, the team is now saying they were racially profiled.
6: Are they college students? Okay.
4: This body cam video shows Georgia deputies searching college students' bags during a traffic stop. On board, the women's lacrosse team from Delaware State University, a historically black college, on their way home after a game in Florida. If there
7: is anything in y'all's luggage,
9: we're probably going to find it. Okay, I'm not looking for a little bit of marijuana, but
6: I'm pretty sure you guys are probably going to be disappointed in you if uh, we
4: find it. I don't really know what they were trying to find. 19-year-old Sanaya Craft recorded parts of the encounter with her phone, thinking it would be part of her video blog about her lacrosse team. She didn't expect she'd end up gathering evidence of what she says was racial profiling by the Liberty County Sheriff's deputies.
3: I don't think, if I feel as if we were a different colored team, um, like majority of lacrosse playing teams. that
6: that wouldn't have happened. Um, we're going to find out exactly what it is.
4: Delaware State University President Tony Allen said in a statement that he was incensed, and the video taken by players shows law enforcement members attempting to intimidate our student-athletes into confessing to possession of drugs and or drug paraphernalia.
13: What is it? By a
4: While the university and ASUN conference say they are conducting their own investigations, the Liberty County Sheriff, who is black, pushed back against allegations of any wrongdoing, citing that the bus violated state law by not staying in the two most right-hand lanes. The sheriff also said patrols pulled over another bus where contraband was found.
14: Although I do not believe any racial profiling took place based on the information I currently have, I welcome feedback from our community.
4: While Kraft says the incident saddens her, she says she's now focused on a brighter future, for her and her teammates.
3: I know um, for us as black black women, sometimes we get looked down on. And I just, I don't want that to happen. Um, I don't want that ever happen to any of my teammates.
4: Now, Jake, Sanaya Kraft also tells me, as you'd imagine, that this was a scary and really traumatic experience for her and her teammates. But she said she's glad that she recorded this incident that has garnered the national attention that she believes it deserves because she says the public needs to know what people of color go through. Um, By the way, the Liberty County Sheriff's Department is investigating um, this as well, Jake.
1: Amber Walker reporting for us from Atlanta. Thanks so much. Uh, Let's talk now to Pamela Jenkins the head coach of the Delaware State's women's lacrosse team and was on the bus with her student athletes that day. Uh, Coach, thanks for joining us. What was going through your mind when the officers boarded the team's bus and then said they were going to search through everyone's luggage?
14: I felt violated to hear them say that. Uh, I, I trust my student athletes and being Division I athletes, marijuana is just not something that they take part in. So to hear the police say that in that accusatory tone, it made me very upset and then also helpless because there was no way in that moment that I could keep them safe.
1: Do you think that if this had been a bus full of white lacrosse players, the same thing would have happened?
14: I do not think that um, for the, the simple fact that before searching our bus, the police officer came on the bus and saw the demographic of our team. And when the word narcotics was brought up, he went straight to uh, marijuana. And, you know, unfortunately, stereotypically, that is a drug that's a, that is uh, connected to African-Americans. And he saw the demographic of our team. He made that assumption. Um, and I feel like, you know, he acted accordingly based off of the demographic that we are.
1: Officials in Delaware are now calling on the U.S. Justice Department to get involved. Uh, are you satisfied with how things are, are going so far in terms of the national attention it's getting uh, and the, the sympathy that's been expressed by your senators and, and House member uh, for the students?
14: I am so proud of the, the support that we've received and for those getting involved, you know, it's our hope that this doesn't happen to anyone else in the future. And this is the way that you bring about change. And I think that's why we are so adamant about talking about it is because we want to make sure that no one else has to go through what we went through on that day, um, to feel that way. And then just in the days after, just thinking about that traumatic experience. It's our hope that from this, people understand that this is still going on and hopefully we'll be the last team that has to experience something like this.
1: And lastly, Coach, I know some of the athletes uh, have uh, headed back home since the school year is over. Um, How are they doing? I mean, they're college kids. How how are they? I
14: think at the moment it it was traumatic and that we really didn't get a chance to process because they got back and it was getting ready for final exams and then to go home. Uh, in some sense, with everything happening right now, they're home surrounded by their families and their communities, and they still have the love and support of their DSU community uh, and also their community and family at home. So, I think we're so focused on bringing about change that we at the moment are focused on that and not so much on ourselves. Um, But I'm proud of how they're handling everything. And they are definitely the cream of the crop when it comes to scholar athletes.
1: Well, I'm glad you're proud of them. We are, too. Coach Pamela Jenkins. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up next, allegations of war crimes, new video captured, obtained by CNN, capturing what Russian soldiers did at a car dealership in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Singled Out, a German airline apologizes after some passengers say they were not allowed to board their connecting flight because they're Jewish. Plus, CNN obtains new video from inside Ukraine capturing incredibly brazen and barbaric actions of Russian soldiers then showing even more callousness after their attack and leading this hour, the cost of living. For the first time in months, high prices start to ease with a new report today showing annual inflation is up 8.3% compared to last month's 8.5% rise, but change likely will not be noticeable for millions of Americans who are still just trying to get by. And as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports, President Biden admits inflation is still unacceptably high, even as the White House tries to find a positive spin on the new data.
15: From a family farm in Illinois,
16: I can still drive it.
15: (laughs) President Biden taking aim at the top challenges confronting his presidency rising prices and the war in Ukraine.
16: Right now, America is fighting on two fronts at home, its inflation and rising prices. Abroad, it's helping Ukrainians defend their democracy and feeding those who are left hungry around the world.
15: (laughs) as russia's invasion strains the global food supply contributing to already rising food prices at home president biden announcing steps to boost domestic food production doubling federal investment in domestic fertilizer production expanding access to insurance for farmers who plant a second crop and giving farmers access to new technologies to reduce their dependence on costly fertilizers
16: i stand here today to thank American farmers who are the the breadbasket of democracy.
15: Biden speaking amid an early sign inflation may be slowing. News Biden greeted cautiously. What do you make of the new inflation numbers out today? Prices rose by 8.3 percent compared to last year, according to the latest Consumer Price Index, down from the 8.5 percent annual increase in March. And from March to April, prices increased at their slowest rate since last summer, rising just 0.3 percent. But inflation remains near a 40-year high, with the prices of gas, used cars, and food still well above last year's cranking up political pressure on the president.
16: I uh, I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously and it's my top domestic priority. Republicans continuing to hammer Biden over
13: inflation. The gas prices are higher today than they were a few weeks ago. Families are paying over $150 in many cases to fill their vehicle and they're angry about it. This is an embarrassment beyond what any developed country in the world has seen. And it's all because Joe Biden and the incompetent people running in his administration have gotten us to crisis
15: after crisis. And, Jake, while the White House is obviously happy to see the pace of inflation slowing in this latest report, you saw President Biden there uh, pretty cautious as he greeted this news, telling me that, look, it's got to keep coming down, even though these numbers are starting to come down. Uh, that's because the president doesn't want to be seen as celebrating this, even as those prices across the country remain so high. He knows this is a big issue coming uh, for at the forefront for these November midterms. Jake.
1: All right, Jeremy Diamond reporting live for us from outside Chicago, Illinois. Thank you so much. Joining us to help break down and understand these economic numbers, former Reagan economic advisor and Trump 2016 campaign advisor Arthur Laffer and Betsy Stevenson, the former chief economist at the Department of Labor and member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Uh, Arthur Laffer, let me start with you. So the, the new data is both good and bad. Uh, our chief business correspondent said this morning, The fire is still burning, but the flames aren't quite as big as they were. Uh,
16: Should we feel optimistic or pessimistic today, do you think? Well, this month's increase was very low. In fact, I, I think it was the lowest since January of 2021. So it's a very nice monthly number. But if you look at last month's number, it was the highest month ever. It's going back as far as the eye can see. So you've got the highest month last month, the lowest month this month. So you've got all this contradictory. If you look at the core inflation, which some people like to look at more than just the CPI, Uh, the core inflation was up a little bit from last month. So all of these numbers really don't give us a clear picture of what's happening. But the the administration should be pleased uh, by the monthly number. And Betsy, uh, one thing
1: Americans know is that pretty much everything they're trying to do or buy keeps getting more expensive gas For your car, is up more than 43% from this time last year. Buying a used car, up nearly 23%. Food, up more than 9%. Shelter, rent, a huge part of any individual or family budget. 5.1% more expensive than last April. The rising cost of rent, in particular, caught my eye. That's a really big deal, right?
17: Yeah, I mean, look, families are definitely feeling inflation. Uh, I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge. Um, You know, there's an interesting, though, juxtaposition between what families care about and what, you know, the Fed is looking at, what macroeconomists are looking at. Families care a lot about the price of gas and the price of food. And then, you know, macroeconomists like to, to strip those out. That's what we call core inflation because those things tend to be really volatile. But that's what families look at every day. Every day, you know, they're going and get gas or they are buying food and they're seeing these prices tick up and it's frustrating. Um, I totally understand that. But what we did see this month was we didn't see the same kind of increase in April Uh, as Arthur Lather said, as we saw in March, if we keep getting numbers like April, it's getting better. And I think that's the real hopeful sign. Um, You know, what economists are worried about is not what we saw in today's report, because I think today's report, we start to see things getting a little bit better. But is there a risk of future inflation on the horizon that comes as consumers start to want to get out more, uh, get over COVID, and they want to command. They want to demand. They want to purchase more services. They want to get on those airplanes. They want to go on vacation. They want to go out to dinner. And the fear is that if we can't hire workers uh, to meet that demand, we're going to see inflation in places we haven't seen it. So far, we've been seeing it in food, shelter, but we haven't been seeing it in a lot of other services like medical care, like education, alike uh, leisure and hospitality. But this month we saw a big increase in airfare prices and you know that doesn't bode well yeah. for the
1: summer. Let's talk about that, Arthur, because the cost of airfare, that number just really sure. jumped out at me. Right now, right now, plane tickets cost about 33 percent more uh, than they did a year ago. Thirty three percent. That's a huge bump. What's driving that?
16: Well, that's all driving and all the combination of all these things is because they raise their fares by one time and then that's a larger month. It's not continuous. But when you look at these numbers, Jake, if I may, you know, we know that the next two months will see a diminution of the pressure on increasing inflation because the months we're dropping off the index are very high months. But then in the next three months, right leading up to the election, The numbers that are dropping off the index are very low numbers, which means that you can really expect inflation numbers to rise sharply coming into the election. That is the thing that would worry me most if I were the president and the Democrats today. Now, your food and gasoline and energy and airfares and all of that can bop around a lot. But things like rents don't. They rise continuously. And rent increases, I think, are 30% of this index, and they've just been rising straight up, going straight up. Now, these volatile items can move about, but things like rent and other things just don't change very much. So I think the administration does have a problem long term as to the consequences.
1: All right, Arthur Laffer, Laffer and Betsy Stevenson, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up, what some states are bracing for now after the leak of that draft Supreme Court decision, which would overturn Roe v. Wade. Plus... A new CNN analysis shows just how many people have died from COVID even after being vaccinated and the difference that booster shots made. Stay with us. In our Politics Lead moments ago, the Democratic-led bill aimed at preserving access to abortion nationwide failed in the Senate. As expected, all Republicans and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin opposed the bill. Now states are taking matters into their own hands. As the fate of Roe v. Wade continues to hang in the balance, some states are preparing to implement total bans on abortion. Others are passing laws to protect abortion rights and preparing for an influx of out-of-state patients. But as CNN's Ed Lavendera reports for us, the tensions and the legal battles are expected from coast to coast. <laughs> If the Supreme
9: Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, it will cement America's political fault lines in a way not seen in more than 50 years. Colorado State Representative Daphna Michelson Janet says she's bracing for a post Roe v. Wade world. Her own experience makes her fear what will happen.
18: Safe and legal abortion should be available to the individual who needs it and understand that taking away abortion rights and abortion services and abortion care puts women's lives at risk, period.
9: The Democratic lawmaker says she was 20 weeks pregnant when her baby's heartbeat stopped. She says she was sent to an abortion clinic.
18: I was already bleeding and and my doctor was afraid that I could hemorrhage um, and die. What I think is important about my story and that people don't understand is that abortion care is a part of pregnancy care.
9: The leaked Supreme Court draft opinion suggests abortion rights will be left to individual states. If that happens, the landscape of abortion access will become a sporadic patchwork of different laws. This is what the country would look like, according to analysis by the Guttmacher Institute, a group supporting abortion rights. Sixteen states and the District of Columbia have laws protecting abortion rights, but at least 26 states are ready or will likely move to outlaw abortion access. Thirteen of those states have so-called trigger laws designed to immediately ban abortions if Roe v. Wade is overturned. We're going to have this patchwork of different states, different laws, different standards. Are you comfortable with that?
19: I would love for there to be all states where abortion didn't exist in our country. I I realize that's not where we're headed.
9: Theresa Sadler is the director of an East Texas clinic offering counseling and medical services to pregnant women, offering alternatives to abortion. She says she was inspired to do this work because when she was 19, she had an abortion, a choice she regrets. Last year, Texas lawmakers passed a law banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy.
19: The women that we're seeing, they seem more panicked and angry because there is a shorter time frame.
9: How much more panicked and scared are these women going to be when it's illegal?
19: We've never lived in that world. What we see is a lot of our women, once that is decided to be illegal, it goes off the table for them. Um, They're rule followers, for lack of a better word. So if abortion's not an option, it it isn't an option in her head. And so I think my hope is that some of that panic goes
9: away. In the states with trigger laws, abortion access will also look very different. Five states have different versions of laws that would allow abortions in cases of rape, incest, or if the life of the mother is in danger. Eight states will only allow abortions in cases where the life of the mother is in danger. But all of this will likely have one clear effect for states where abortion will remain legal.
18: We're going to have a lot of um, people traveling to Colorado to be able to get that safe legal abortion from all the states that surround us that do not have safe and legal abortion.
9: And, Jake, advocates on both sides say that they also anticipate that uh, this Supreme Court decision could very well open up a Pandora's box for new laws that might be needed in the future. And so questions about exactly how would uh, the the determination of a woman's life being in danger because of pregnancy, uh, would there be efforts to curtail that or control how those decisions are made? And Teresa Sadler talked about, uh, we talked about with her, uh, would there be questions about these uh, clinics that offer uh, abortion alternative uh, counseling, uh, would they be required to report women who come in asking for counseling? So these are all the types of questions that so many of these advocates are bracing for.
1: All right, Ed Levandera, thank you so much. Let's discuss this all with CNN political commentator David Urban and CNN political analyst Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let me start with uh, you. What's your reaction uh, to Ed Levandera's piece right there, where you, you talked about, you heard people talking about preparing for a post-war world in Texas?
19: Well, I mean, I think it's important that, you know, he, he was quoting somebody talking about abortion being part of pregnancy care. I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize that it's actually an abortion if somebody has a miscarriage, for example, um, and and needs to have uh, the fetus removed from their body. And, and in some cases, uh, if it isn't done right away, it actually can endanger their health or even their life. So this is a very complex issue. And, I, and it really does if, if it is made illegal, um, it will put women's lives at risk. And so I think that that's why you see even peop- a lot of people who personally identify as being pro-life can recognize that there is a reason to have abortion legal and for that decision to be made by doctors and the woman, not by, um, you know, the legislature or the Supreme Court.
1: David, today, House Republican leaders Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise um, refused to answer questions about whether or not they would support a nationwide abortion ban uh, if Republicans win back control of the House uh, and Roe v. Wade is overturned. They said it was a hypothetical. It's not a hypothetical. I mean, both of those things appear likely to happen, shouldn't there at least be some transparency about what Republicans intend to do here?
2: Well, they, 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 there was. They're not gonna answer the question, Jake, right? They're, they're gonna let it. They, the Republicans believe that, uh, that these issues should be decided at the state level. And, and uh, I think both uh, you know, uh, Representative Scalise and, and uh, McCarthy should have just, just clearly answered that and said, look, this is our belief. We believe it's, these issues are best decided by the states. And, and that's what we feel. I think that's their, their viewpoint. I don't know why they didn't answer straightforward." Kirsten, well, uh, probably because to it's prime. not
19: what they believe. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can well, I go just ahead? Address Continue, that? Huh? I mean, I think that, Please. yeah, I think the reason they didn't answer it is because I don't think that that's what they believe. I, it, Mitch McConnell said just a couple days ago that if the votes were there, uh, meaning if the votes were in the Senate, uh that, that that having a nationwide abortion ban was possible. I mean that's Michigan. That but,
2: but if you read his, his whole statement, listen I to it. I did
19: read it. Yeah, it, 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 it was, it was a hypothetical
2: statement. saying, hey, anything's possible. It's about votes. I mean, McConnell's a vote No, counter. That's
19: not what he said. Don't oh, gaslight oh, me. I'm not gaslighting. Gaslight oh, that on. is not what he said. Kristen. Yes, you are. He no. he said he said quite clearly. Clearly, if the votes are there and he was speak when he says if uh, the votes are there, he's talking about the Senate and he said he wouldn't he wouldn't nuke the filibuster for it. So if the votes are there, a nationwide ban is possible. That that's not a hypothetical. That I don't, I think I, I think if you say the House the and Senate Republican there, control.
1: Let's just do one at a time. Guys, let's just do one at a time. Christian, Sorry. finish your thought and then David, go ahead.
19: No, I mean I'm just saying that's what he said. So, and, and, and so I don't know, I don't even, I, it's hypothetical only in the sense that he's saying he would need to have the votes.
2: I, 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 I am pretty certain I can predict that a Republican house and Senate will not enact a nationwide ban
1: on abortion. Let's uh, switch to well, last night's on? primaries. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to, uh, can I, can I just, let me just no, talk about the no, primaries no, no, Jake, and we'll, no. we'll the,
19: yeah,
1: you Okay. Do you want to continue about this? It's, it's, it's fine with me, whichever you want, Kirsten.
19: No, 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 no. It's your show. <laughs> it's
1: like, let us
19: talk about the other stuff. It's
1: no, I know. It's an important <laughs> issue. And this is going to continue. They haven't yeah. yet overturned Roe v. Wade. We anticipate they will, and we're going to continue talking about this. But I do want to talk about the primaries, if that's OK, because it seemed to be a mixed bag last yeah. night uh, for Trump's candidates. Uh, his pick uh, for the House of Representatives in West Virginia, there was a Republican against Republican primary, Congressman Alex Mooney. He won. In Nebraska, however, Trump's candidate Charles Herbster lost the nomination. He was running for governor. He was under a cloud because a lot of allegations against him for allegedly groping, ones that he denied. What's your takeaway, Kirsten, from from Trump's endorsement power right now?
19: Well, I mean, if you if you look at it, I think you also have to throw JD Vance into the mix, and so uh, he he had Trump's endorsement and he won. So, you know, I would say so far Trump's doing pretty well. Um, we don't, but we can't say until we see a few more primaries coming up, like in Pennsylvania, for example. He's endorsed, um, you know, Dr. Oz. We we'll have to see how how he does and in a few more primaries and I think we can draw more of a conclusion but right now it does seem that he's made a difference for um, some candidates including candidates that had some pretty heavy hitters on their side um, in West Virginia had Senator Manchin and and had the governor and and so it's not like it was just some random person.
1: Um, and David, uh, let's look uh, to Tuesday to Pennsylvania, uh, your and my ho- home commonwealth. Trump's endorsed Dr. Haas. Uh, Dr. Oz, is curious to you are personal friends with Dave McCormick, who's also one of the competitors there. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, Trump's endorsement, do you think it will ultimately win out? So so interestingly, Jake, you know, I, I think in Pennsylvania, you're
2: seeing uh, what you're seeing play out right now is uh, is is Trump's endorsement um, didn't really help Dr. Oz. He got a little bit of a bounce. Um, uh, initially after Dr. Oz's endorsement, and then the president came to Pennsylvania um, and really went after Dave McCormick personally and, uh, and, and you know, didn't really move the numbers that much. And I- interestingly, you know, the, the person that's, that's surging the polls isn't Dr. Oz, but Kathy Barnett, a, a, a you know, another uh, conservative Republican candidate on the ballot. So I think, uh, you know, Trump's endorsement does matter in certain cases, but I think it also you know, people, people are smart. They look at the candidates, right? Candidates matter, not just Donald Trump's endorsement, right? Herbster was just a bad candidate. He was a bad, he, was, he wasn't going to win whether Trump endorsed him or uh, anybody endorsed him. He was, you know, he was riddled with problems. And, and so, you know, better candidate won there. And we're going to see that in, a, in Idaho. I think, you know, Trump's endorsed candidate for governor is going to lose. Obviously, you know, David Perdue, I think is going to lose in Georgia. People, you know, people are smart when they go to the polls. So while, while Donald Trump is, is persuasive, I don't think his endorsement is dispositive. It makes a big difference in some of these House races that could be swayed by, you know, a couple thousand votes here and there. But when you're running a statewide race, you know, it, it's it's a completely different ball of wax. J.D. Vance was definitely helped by Trump. It was a, you know, crowded primary. Yeah. You know, just remember, you know, J.D. Vance, 68 percent of, of uh, Republicans in Ohio didn't vote for J.D. Vance. So it's not like he, you know, right. Trump's endorsement resulted in some overwhelming, um, you know, uh, you know, Crush, crushing blow by JD. He did, he's a great guy, did a great job. But, you know, it Trump's Trump's endorsement is very important, but it's not dispositive.
1: Right. All right. David Urban and Kirsten Powers, thanks to both. Of you appreciate it. Coming up, we've seen the aftermath of Russian attacks in Ukraine, but new video obtained by CNN shows one of the attacks as it happens. That's next. Stay with us. Topping our world lead now, Ukraine reports that its forces have freed some villages around Kharkiv amid signs of a Russian retreat in that area. Recapturing the battered area would be a significant accomplishment for Ukrainian forces. However, there remain signs that the Russians are gathering nearby for a counteroffensive. We're also getting new details of the Russians' horrifying behavior in areas near Kiev that they once occupied, but since left, we need to warn you that this report by CNN's Sarah Seidner contains pictures that you will likely find disturbing.
20: This is a stark example of a potential war crime perpetrated by Russian forces. An example the world has not yet seen. Russian soldiers shooting two civilians in the back. CNN obtained the surveillance video taken from this vehicle dealership that sits along the main highway to Kyiv. The video is from the beginning of the war, as Russians tried and failed to shell their way to the capital, The fight along this road was clearly fierce. But what happened outside this business was not a battle between soldiers or even soldiers and armed civilians. It was a cowardly, cold-blooded killing of unarmed men by Russian forces. The soldiers show up and begin breaking in. Inside of a guard shack, two Ukrainian men prepare to meet them. We track down the men's identities. One is the owner of the business, whose family did not want him named. The other was hired to guard it.
18: My father's name is Leonid Alexievich Platts. His
20: daughter Yulia wanted the world to know his name and what the Russians did to him. Both civilians, both unarmed. We know this because the video shows them greeting and getting frisked by the Russian soldiers and then casually walking away. Neither seemed to suspect what was about to happen. That is what a member of the civilian fighting force who talked to the men a couple of days before the attack told CNN. He did not want to be identified for security reasons.
2: We came there earlier, warned people to leave that place. We also hope for the humanity of Russian soldiers, but unfortunately, they have no humanity.
20: You see the two men walking in the shadows toward the camera. Behind them, the soldiers they were just talking to emerge. A few more steps, and their bodies drop to the ground. Dust shoots up from the bullets hitting the pavement. The soldiers have opened fire. Minutes later, the guard, Leonid, gets up, limping but alive. He manages to get inside the guard booth to make a call to the local guys for help. This is one of those guys, a Ukrainian truck driver turned civilian soldier.
2: First of all, we felt a big responsibility. We knew we should go there because a man needed our help. He was still alive.
20: He's the commander of a ragtag team of civilians who took up arms to fight for Ukraine and tried to save the men. When the guard called them, he explained what transpired with the soldiers. He said the soldiers asked who they were and asked for cigarettes, then let them go, before shooting them in the back. When his men finally got to Leonid, he had lost massive amounts
2: of blood. One man from our group went there, and the guy was still alive. He gave him bandages, tried to perform first aid, but the
20: Russians started shooting. They tried to fight back, but were unsuccessful. They didn't have the firepower to save their countrymen. Yulia, have you seen the video?
18: I can't watch it now. I will save it to the cloud and leave it for my grandchildren and children. They should know about this crime and always remember who our neighbours are.
20: Her neighbours to the north, these Russian soldiers, showed just how callous they are. Drinking, toasting one another and looting the place minutes after slaying the two men. What were the last words that you remember he said to you?
21: Bye-bye. Kisses. Say hello
20: to your boys. Her boys will be left with a terrible lasting memory. The death of their grandfather now being investigated as a war crime by prosecutors. Yulia says her mother actually encouraged her to speak with us because she wanted to seek justice for the death of her father. We do now know. We talked to prosecutors who say they are looking at this video and they are investigating this officially as a potential war crime, Jake.
1: Sarah Seidner in Kyiv, Ukraine, as the alarms go off. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. With us now is former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Uh, Bill, uh, M- 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 Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. Um, U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines just warned Congress that as this war drags on, it is likely to become, quote, more unpredictable and escalatory. Do you agree?
6: I do, Jake. Uh, it's it's hard to say what's going through Putin's mind. No one really knows. Um, he's got no good options. Uh, he demonstrated that that famous speech a couple of days ago on victory day um, where he didn't announce doubling down. He didn't announce standing down with some victories. He didn't have any victory. He was worried about doubling down and calling up the reserves, but because that would, that would expose the lie um, that he's not really fighting. So he doesn't have, he doesn't have good options. And so no one really knows what he does.
1: DNI Haynes also warned that there are increasing chances in her view that Putin could impose martial law in Russia and reorient industrial production to sustain his war effort Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov he denies that but but how stable are things in Russia or how unstable
6: Very unstable uh, again he's probably worried President Putin is probably worried he's got somewhere between 10,000. 000- and 20,000 Russian soldiers who've been killed um, in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen some of those Russian soldiers killing civilians just now and horrifying. But 10,000 to 20,000 have been killed and are going back for burial um, in places around Russia. So there's discontent. There's real problems. There's there's economic problems caused by the, the sanctions. So Putin doesn't have good options, and the uh, the martial law, um, will probably be destabilizing rather than stabilizing.
1: Peskov also said today that Russia is ready to take over the Kherson region uh, of Ukraine, if that's what the people there, quote unquote, want. Um, obviously, Russian forces occupy much of the area. They've installed their own puppet leaders. How can any request by those puppet leaders to join Russia possibly be seen by anyone else in the world as a as a freely made decision?
6: Clearly not. There's no way that it will be seen as a as a freely made decision. Um, it, it's exactly what you said. If they do that, if they try to do that, and they've done it before, that's what they did in Donbass, they did in Donetsk and Luhansk, what they did <coughs> in Crimea. Well, we, we know that they've done that before and they're likely to try that again. Um, and just like in Crimea and Donetsk, Luhansk, no one believes them. No one accepts uh, what, what they're trying to do. The Ukrainians will never give up claim to those, those lands. It's Ukrainian land.
1: Let's turn to the economic aspects of the war. The Ukrainians today said they've been forced to suspend shipments of Russian natural gas going to Europe through pipelines that run through Ukraine, complaining, by interfe- complaining that interference by Russian forces has endangered the system, stability and safety. Excuse me. How much trouble could this cause in Europe if it continues?
6: Well, fortunately, Jake, um, it's spring. Um, And fortunately, that means that the heating season is now over. So demand for that gas goes down, is going down. And there are a good number, a good amount of reserves of gas uh, to to take them through the summer into the fall. They should be resupplying. Uh, replenishing those reserves, uh, so that will be an issue that they'll have to take a look at. But the Ukrainians know that these pipelines go through areas that the that the Russians control, that the Russians occupy, and they are bleeding off some of this gas. So the Ukrainians are saying they'll they'll, they'll move the gas, but through a different set of pipelines that's not controlled by the Russians.
1: Ambassador Bill Taylor, thanks so much. Coming up next, the staggering loss of American lives to a single crisis that started well before COVID. Stay with us. In our health lead, losing a life to overdose every five minutes. That's how the top Biden administration official in charge of the nation's drug policy is describing devastating and alarming new data from the CDC showing that U.S. drug overdose deaths set a new record high for the second year in a row. Nearly 108,000 Americans suffered a fatal overdose last year. That's an almost 50% increase from 2019, the year before the pandemic started. Now, most of the deaths, about two-thirds, involved a synthetic opioid such as fentanyl. Overall, drug overdoses killed about a quarter as many Americans last year, as did COVID. Also in our health lead, more vaccinated people are dying of COVID, according to CDC data. Forty percent of the COVID deaths in January and February were from people considered fully vaccinated. Booster shots substantially lower the risk, but 15% of deaths among vaccinated people in February were also among people who were vaccinated and boosted. Dr. Paul Offit joins me now. He's a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. Dr. Offit, the, the share of COVID deaths among vaccinated people has grown over time. Right now, we're seeing transmission rates tick up again. Should we be concerned about vaccine effectiveness going forward?
13: I think we should redefine what it means to be fully vaccinated. I think for those people who are over 65, this is a three-dose vaccine, a three-dose primary series. If you're over 12 and you have the kind of health problems that put you at risk for serious COVID, This is a three-dose vaccine. I think the term booster has confusing people. And the the CDC's current definition of fully vaccinated really is two doses still. But I think this is a three-dose vaccine with that third dose being given four to six months later in certain groups to be truly protected against serious illness.
1: Why? Why does the CDC not update its definition, uh, given the fact that it's so obvious that you need to have three vaccines, two plus the booster, uh, in order to be as protected as possible.
13: No, I think it's been confusing. It's true. I think if you ask Americans, what does it mean to be fully vaccinated, you get a lot of different answers. So I do think we need to be clear about this primary series. The goal of the vaccine is to prevent serious illness. And I think when the vaccine first rolled out, Two doses was highly protective against serious illness, certainly for healthy people less than 50. But we've learned since then that if you if you have comorbidities, meaning the kind of healthcare problems that put you at risk and you're over 12 or certainly if you're over 65, it's a three dose primary series. And and that is what we have to, um, I think, make clear to the public, because the word booster, I think, is confusing.
1: Does this data suggest to you that variant specific vaccines are needed? I know you're going to be discussing this with your colleagues on the FDA FDA vaccine advisory committee next month?
13: Right, we're gonna be discussing this on June 28th. I I think we have to define what the goal of the vaccine is. If, If the goal of the vaccine is protection against serious illness, to date, independent of the variant, whether it's the alpha variant or the delta variant or the beta variant or now the Omicron variant or the BA2 variant, you are protected against serious illness. What happened with Omicron or with the subsequent variants like BA2 or these B A two subvariants is you're not as well protected against mild illness, but that really isn't the goal of the vaccine. I think right now what you're seeing in many ways is what you want to see, which is that you probably have about 90% population immunity between vaccination or natural infection and or both. So when you see cases rise, as for example, they recently did in Philadelphia, what you don't see consequent to that is an increase in hospitalizations or ICU admissions. That's good. That's a vaccine that's doing well. What it's supposed to do, which is basically keeping people out of the hospital. So I think in terms of a variant-specific vaccine, I think until we see a variant arise, which despite being vaccinated or naturally infected or both, you still are at risk of serious disease, then I don't think we need a, a variant-specific vaccine until that variant comes up and it hasn't come up yet.
1: Uh, finally, uh, I have to ask this on behalf of all the frustrated parents of kids under five out there. They're still waiting for a vaccine for their little ones. Progress seems to be really, really at a slow pace. When can parents of kids under five expect this to be ready?
13: Right, so Moderna has already submitted for emergency use authorization uh,
1: to the FDA,
13: um, and then and that's a two-dose vaccine. Uh, Pfizer's in the midst of a three-dose trial. My understanding is, is, is it's likely that both vaccines will be considered sometime around mid-June.
1: All right, Dr. Paul Offit, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A German airline is now apologizing after a group of Jewish passengers were not allowed to board their flight. Why not? That's next. Now to our other world lead. More than 100 Jewish passengers were turned away at the gate from a Lufthansa flight in Germany. The German airline says the decision came after some of the Jewish passengers had refused to comply with masking rules on a connecting flight. CNN's Alexandra Field looks at how this all played out in the airport.
21: A German airline, Lufthansa, is apologizing a week after Orthodox Jewish passengers on a flight from New York's JFK airport to Frankfurt, Germany, were told they couldn't take their connecting flight to Budapest. The announcement that their tickets had suddenly been canceled made at the gate. Due to an operational reason
7: coming uh, from, from the flight from New
15: York,
21: all
13: passengers here um, we have, uh, to cancel do we don't know. We don't
21: know the airline says some people didn't follow mask rules on the previous flight masks are still required by lufthansa but they are not mandatory at frankfurt airport But several Jewish passengers tell CNN that 100 to 150 Orthodox Jews were kept off the next flight— even those who did follow crew instructions, while other passengers were still allowed to board. In a statement about the May 4th flight, the airline now says, Lufthansa regrets the circumstances surrounding the decision to exclude the affected passengers from the flight, for which Lufthansa sincerely apologizes. The airline goes on to say, what transpired is not consistent with Lufthansa's policies or values. We have zero tolerance for racism, anti-Semitism, and discrimination of any type. Lufthansa now says it's reviewing the facts and circumstances of that day. We regret that the large group was denied boarding rather than limiting it to the non-compliant guests. Several Orthodox Jewish passengers tell CNN they didn't observe any problems during the flight from JFK, yet the airline singled them out as a group. A widely shared video shows tensions escalating between one passenger and an airline employee at the Frankfurt airport. Like these Jewish people who were the mess... who made the problems. So Jewish people on the plane made a problem, so all Jews are banned from Wisconsin for the day? Just for this flight. In a tweet, a German lawmaker, Marlene Schoenberger, is calling for further investigation. If the reports are true, there must be consequences. Excluding Jews from a flight because they were recognizable as Jewish is a scandal. I expect German companies in particular to be aware of anti-Semitism. Lufthansa's CEO is now telling all employees there is no place for anti-Semitism. An internal review is underway into how decisions were made. But a spokesperson for the airline says no disciplinary action has been taken at this point. Jake?
1: Of course not. Alexander Field, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, new plans announced today to fend off what's being called a floating time bomb. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, how does one fix a floating time bomb? This is the FSO Safar, anchored off the coast of Yemen, and it is at imminent risk of spilling a massive amount of the more than one million barrels of oil that it holds. UN officials say the solution is to transfer the oil off the ship over a period of four months. Today, they're launching a fundraising effort for the $80 million that will cost Yemen's Houthi rebels have controlled the ship since 2015, ceasing maintenance and allowing it to fall into disrepair. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at this lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know what you can do? You can listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level.